0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello everyone, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library, and today I will be continuing with my biographical discussion about two of the most legendary of Hollywood actresses, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine, who were, of course, big stars of Hollywood's golden era of the 1930s and the 1940s. But they are also famous as two feuding sisters who were locked into a kind of ancient sibling rivalry that goes all the way back to their childhoods. Now, if you'd like to listen to part one in this two-part series, you can find it on the city's SoundCloud page, where I left off with Olivia de Havilland's triumph as Melanie in Gone with the Wind and Sister Joan Fontaine's screen testing for the lead role in Alfred Hitchcock's movie, Rebecca. Probably not coincidentally, that was also one of the roles that Olivia was angling for. Rebecca, I mean, much to the displeasure of her boss at Warner Brothers, Jack Warner. But she was not to get it. Instead, both the director Alfred Hitchcock and producer David Selznick. They instead chose Joan for the role of the second Mrs. De Winter in Rebecca. Score one for Joan. And what's more, she was Oscar nominated that year in 1940 for her performance in Rebecca, which turned out to be a smash hit at the box office, while also winning the 1940 Best Picture Oscar. And as a consequence of that success, Joan Fontaine became a huge star as the shy, lonely, somewhat tentative second wife playing opposite Laurence Olivier in this now-classic movie that, I mean, something we still watch today. Rebecca is a great film. And it was uh, one of um, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, earliest successes in Hollywood. But perhaps given Joan's family background comprised of aristocratic Norman ancestors from the island of Guernsey, there is, I think, some irony to be found in Fontaine having had what is essentially her greatest success, or one of her greatest successes in Rebecca, in playing this interloper at a swank English household. Her family background was 100% swank in real life. Of course, the character she's playing is from something of a much more modest background. Nevertheless, with this newfound persona and the fragile allure associated with it, Joan Fontaine from Rebecca Onwards would often play the timid ingenue or woman full of anxiety, someone stricken with doubts and faced with, you know, oppressive psychological forces, which made for a natural sympathy among the audience for her films. Now, while Fontaine did not win a Best Actress Oscar for Rebecca, she was only nominated, Ginger Rogers took home the award for Kitty Foyle that year. She did win the following year as Best Actress in Suspicion which co-starred Cary Grant, and which was also directed by Alfred Hitchcock. In fact, Fontaine's performance in Suspicion was to be the only Academy Award-winning acting performance to have been directed by Alfred Hitchcock in his entire career. Among the actresses that she beat out that year was Sister Olivia de Havilland, who was nominated for Hold Back the Dawn. The Best Actress Award was the last award given that fateful night in 1942. And as Ginger Rogers, who, as I said, won the previous year, stepped up to the microphone to present the award, all eyes were on the table where the two sisters sat. As Ginger Rogers read out the name Joan Fontaine for Suspicion, The room erupted in applause, while Joan just sat dumbstruck, staring at her sister. Finally, Olivia had to prod her to go up and accept the statuette. Years later, Joan would remember how, with her sister sitting next to her, she froze as her name rang out. As Olivia told her to get up there, Joan burst into tears, she recalled all the resentments and all the jealousies of an uncomfortably shared childhood returned in that moment. And I quote Joan here from her autobiography of several decades later. The hair pulling, the savage wrestling matches, the time Olivia fractured my collarbone, all came rushing back in kaleidoscopic imagery. My paralysis was total. I felt as if I were age four, being confronted by my older sister. Damn it, I thought, I had incurred her wrath again. <laughs> <End> quote. <laughs> so Joan Fontaine's 1942 Oscar win was so much more than just a trophy, really. I mean, competing head-to-head with her older, more famous sister, I mean, the Gone with the Wind star, or one of the stars of Gone with the Wind, Olivia de Havilland, it was finally the proof that the 24-year-old Actress needed, and it also, I think, kind of exacted a certain revenge on her sibling in the fierce rivalry that had dated back to their childhood. I mean, recall Olivia, as I talked about in part one, had had great success in Hollywood from the mid 30s, especially starring or co starring in movies with Errol Flynn, whereas Joan was a secondary star in lesser films at RKO, um, before her first great success with Rebecca. And that night at the Oscars should have been nothing but unrestrained triumph. But according to biographer Charles Hyam, as Fontaine stepped forward to receive her award, she either pointedly rejected, was oblivious to, or simply did not observe Olivia's attempts at congratulating her. And he said that Olivia, or he, as he wrote, Olivia was both offended and embarrassed by her by her sister's behavior, by Joan's behavior in that moment. At the time of Joan's Oscar win, Olivia, whatever her great success of the past. She felt she was rather drowning in a series of low-key comedies like Princess O'Rourke and Government Girl, and that she had not truly realized, despite the notice paid to her in Gone with the Wind, that she had not yet fully realized her ambitions for more serious work. And those unrealized ambitions had caused much tension with her studio, Warner Brothers. Now, a few years later, when she would win her own Best Actress Oscar, Olivia would recall the perceived slight of that night and exact her own kind of revenge by brushing past Fontaine, who was waiting with her hand extended. But I think also because de Havilland had allegedly took offense this is what I read at a comment that Fontaine had made about de then-husband, Marcus Goodrich. So, no slight would go unforgotten in this sibling rivalry. I mean, as I suggested in part one, siblings can share love or they can drift apart, but they can rarely be indifferent to each other. I mean, if they don't get on, the ability to get on each other's nerves and to press each other's mutual rage button is like no other relationship. Perhaps fittingly, in her most famous films, Rebecca and Suspicion, Joan Fontaine comes across as a somewhat passive-aggressive figure. I mean, she could be radiantly shy, believably insecure, you know, gazing into the middle distance with a a hesitancy that draws you immediately to her side. Yet the actress, the professional person beyond that persona, she fashioned a movie career out of sheer willpower and quite possibly, in fact, quite probably, large reservoirs of spite. Now, After the knockout punches of Rebecca and Suspicion, in consecutive years, topped by an Oscar, Joan never really made another film to equal either of these two, at least in terms of popular and critical acclaim. But for the rest of the 1940s, she would continue to excel in mostly romantic melodramas. But Among these films are a number of truly memorable, memorable ones, excuse me, including The Constant Nymph from 1943, for which she received her third Academy Award nomination, Jane Eyre from 1944, with whom she starred with Orson Welles, and the great Max Ophel's sublime heartbreaker, Letter from an Unknown Woman. 1948, And this latter film really plays to her sense of victimized elegance. (laughs) And if a phrase ever suited Joan Fontaine, it is that. But also her romantic persona of vulnerability. And in my opinion, that movie from 1948, Letter from an Unknown Woman is right up there with both Rebecca and Suspicion as among her best films. With Jones star in the ascendancy in the early 1940s, Olivia, her sister Olivia de Havilland, felt constrained, I think, by the lack of ambition in the projects forced upon her by the studio, Warner Brothers, which held her under a rigid contract Nevertheless, several of these movies remain quite watchable today, including The Strawberry Blonde, a romantic comedy with James Cagney uh, from 1941, Hold Back the Dawn, which I spoke about, and for which she was Oscar-nominated from 1941 with Charles Boyer, for which, um, um, you know, she received fine reviews for all of these movies, um, and Princess O'Rourke, another lovely film from 1943, which she, in fact, considered one of the few truly satisfying um, character-based films that she played while under contract for Warner Brothers. Mostly, you know, she was the love interest, um, however high in the billing she featured. But the real disappointment was that the studio still refused to offer her roles that cracked the superficial ingenue or light romantic mold that she had been inhabiting. And after fulfilling or thinking that she had fulfilled her seven-year contract with Warner Brothers in completing the movie Devotion in 1946, De Haviland was informed that six months had been added to her contract because of the times she had been on suspension earlier in that contract. I mean, she would often refuse roles that the studio would mandate that she would have to perform. Now, the law, as it existed then in California, allowed studios to suspend contract players and all, it wasn't, just, it wasn't just Olivia de Havilland, it was all of the great stars of the golden era in Hollywood, they were all on these very exclusive and quite rigid seven-year contracts. And if they were to reject a role presented to them by their bosses at the studios, Um, the period of suspension could be added to the contract at the end of its um, mandate. Now, most contract players accepted this, however big a star they were. But if you try to change the system, including Betty Davis, who mounted an unsuccessful lawsuit against Warner Brothers back in the 30s, she had many of the same complaints that uh, Olivia de Havilland had in not being given enough serious work. However, when de Havilland did likewise and sued Warner Brothers, she won. And the decision was one of the most significant and far-reaching legal rulings in the history of Hollywood. No exaggeration because it reduced the power of the studios and extended greater creative freedom to the actors and actresses who were among their greatest assets. California's resulting seven-year rule, as it is known, I mean, literally known as, uh, in law, as Labor Code Section 2855, Uh, by which it is still known today and by which it is also informally known as the de Havilland Law. I mean, that legal victory won de Havilland widespread respect and admiration among her peers. And even her own sister Joan, who, you know, (laughs) had had, had quite a combative relationship with her, she would say that Hollywood owes Olivia a great deal, so even Joan did not begrudge Olivia this great and far-reaching victory in the courts. But at the time of that victory, um, Olivia would feel the full wrath of Warner Brothers, which reacted to the decision by circulating a letter to the other major studios, you know, like MGM and RKO, and uh, Paramount, for example. And, you know, that, that letter had the effect of a virtual blacklisting of de Havilland. And so as a consequence, Olivia was not able to work f- for any Hollywood film studio for almost two years. Ultimately, however, for Olivia, the ruling would mean, as it would come to mean for all of the great performers in Hollywood, a certain artistic freedom at last. And she made the most of it, certainly, entering into a a kind of golden age of her own. In 1947, she would win her first Best Actress Award for her portrayal of an unwed mother in the great uh, Weepy, To Each His Own. I mean, she is dazzling in that role. It's a film that uh, the great movie critic David Thompson has called her best movie. Not only does she appear more beautiful than ever before, he wrote, but the change to a world centered on the female disclosed a warmth and gentleness that her Warner Brothers films, which of course, in which of course she was always playing a kind of second fiddle to the male lead, had never or rarely bothered about. The night of Olivia's great victory, um, the Oscar was to have been presented to her by Another Joan, Joan Crawford. But Crawford pulled out, and the Academy, perhaps believing that there could not be a better setting for reconciliation between the sisters, as their feud was well-known in Hollywood, replaced her with Joan Fontaine. Now, isn't that interesting? So it was Joan who called her sister's name, Olivia de Havilland, that night, when Olivia won her Oscar. And Olivia stepped up to the podium. The grudge match, as it were, you might have thought, might be over, but alas, it would not be. And anyone present that night expecting a soft hug of reconciliation, you know, something of mutual forgiveness in that, honors were finally even, you might say, watched on as Olivia publicly refused to shake her sister's hand. <laughs> oh, well, c'est la vie. Joan later recalled about this moment. After, the, after Olivia delivered her speech, um, I went over to congratulate her, as I would have done to any winner. She took one look at me, Ignored my hand, clutched her Oscar, and wheeled away. (laughs) Quote unquote. Allegedly, Olivia was heard to mutter, I don't know why she insists on doing that when she knows how I feel. (laughs) Nevertheless, de Havilland was now at a kind of zenith in Hollywood. I mean, she had had this great success in the past, you know, in those films that were hugely popular at the box office with Errol Flynn, not least of which was The Adventures of Robin Hood and, of course, the following year with her great success, even in a supporting role in Gone with the Wind. But she was now really able to call the shots and decide on what films that it was that she wanted to make. And she made some really good ones and was uh, acknowledged for that. I mean, later that same year, in 1947, she would play twins, one good and one a murderous, murderess, excuse me, in the film noir thriller, The Dark Mirror. And I, for one, can't help but feel that she was channeling something of the murderous rivalry between sisters in that dual role. In 1948, Olivia was again nominated, this time for The Snake Pit, which is one of the earliest Hollywood films to attempt a realistic portrayal of mental illness, and which is frequently cited in Histories of Hollywood as an historically important expose of the grim conditions in state mental hospitals as they then existed in the United States. And de Havilland was lauded for her willingness to play a role that was completely devoid of any sense of glamour and which confronted this you know very controversial subject matter and for that she was also featured on the cover story in time magazine which of course was an important barometer of socio-cultural significance in that era now on a roll here really olivia ben closed out the decade with William Wyler's 1949 masterpiece, The Heiress, in which she plays, of course, a naive young woman with a certain resemblance to a character played by Sister Joan. And of course, I'm thinking here of her roles in both Rebecca and Suspicion, but especially Suspicion, because of course, in The Heiress, Olivia, uh, her character falls for a charming, handsome young near-do-well fortune hunter played by Montgomery Cliff. And that, of course, is very similar to the role played by Cary Grant in um, Joan's Oscar-winning uh, film Suspicion. And for her performance in The Heiress, Olivia um, was awarded her second Best Actress Oscar Award, something that Joan never attained, only ever winning for suspicion. The great film critic Pauline Kael would later refer to The Heiress as Olivia de Havilland's finest work. I'm not sure I would go that far, but uh, in any case, it's a very close call. Olivia did a lot of great work, and certainly The Heiress is right up there with the best of him. By the end of the 40s, however, most of the best work from the sisters in movies had been completed, and they rarely, if ever, made films quite as good again. So I think now might be a good time to say a little about the marriages and family life of both Olivia and Joan. Olivia de Havilland was married twice. In 1946, she married uh, Marcus Goodrich, of whom Joan had nothing good to say. (laughs) Goodrich was a Navy veteran author and Hollywood screenwriter. They had one child, Benjamin Goodrich, who was born in 1949. But the marriage ended in divorce in 1952. Their son Benjamin died in 1991 at the age of just 41 of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And just three weeks before the death of his father, rather tragically. In 1955, de Havilland married one Pierre Galant, a journalist and editor of Paris Match. They had one child, Giselle Galant, who was born in 1956. That marriage to Galant prompted de Havilland to move to Paris, where she lived until her death just last year in 2020. The marriage to Gallant did not last, however, and the couple separated in 1962, but rather oddly, I think, did not divorce until 1979. Olivia well recounts her adjustments to Parisian life in her 1962 memoir, Every Frenchman Has One, especially as an American arriving in Paris and not knowing a whole lot of French, and of course anyone who's been in a similar situation can relate, and those who haven't can relate too, because of course Olivia's tale here is a timeless story of two cultures clashing. She wrote that her move to Paris was motivated not just for her love of Gallant, but also by the city's post-war energy And quite significantly, I think, the desire to flee what she saw as a decaying Hollywood overshadowed by the coming dominance of television, which she considered soul-destroying. And she wrote in that 1962 memoir, I quote her here, The golden era was dying, and I knew that whatever replaced it would not be its equal. De Havilland continued with acting until the late 70s, taking the occasional job by, in her words, commuting to Hollywood. And she even earned an Emmy nomination in 1987 for her role as a Russian empress in the NBC miniseries Anastasia, the Mystery of Anna. Among her regrets was having turned down the film version of A Streetcar Named Desire, which won Vivian Lee, of course, a much- well-deserved Oscar. Joan Fontaine herself was married and divorced four times. Her first marriage, as I mentioned in part one, was to actor Brian Ahern in 1939, but they divorced in 1945. The following year, in 1946, she married actor-producer William Dozier in Mexico City. They had a daughter, Deborah Leslie, in 1948, but she and Dozier soon separated as well in 1949. In 1950, Fontaine filed for divorce, charging Dozier with desertion. Fontaine's third marriage was to writer-producer Collier Young in 1952. They separated and divorced in 1960. And her fourth and final marriage was to Sports Illustrated golf editor Alfred Wright Jr. in 1964, before divorcing five years later in 1969. About this history of failed marriages, Joan once told an interviewer in the 1990s in a moment of great self-awareness that, and I quote her here, The moment I walk down the aisle, it's over. End quote. (laughs) Here's a great anecdote. While in South America for a film festival in 1951, Joan Fontaine met a four-year-old Peruvian girl named Martita. And she informally adopted her. Fontaine had met Martita while visiting Incan ruins, where Martita's father worked as a caretaker. And the story is that the girl's parents allowed Fontaine to become Martita's legal guardian in order to give the child a better life. And that Fontaine promised Martita's parents that she would send the girl back to Peru to visit when Martita turned 16 years old. Now, of course, I don't know Martita's side of the story, but apparently, uh, at least from Joan's uh, telling of it, when Martita turned 16, Fontaine bought her a round-trip ticket to Peru, and for whatever reason, Martita refused to go and opted instead to run away. Now, following the incident, Fontaine and Martita became estranged, which, of course, is an ongoing theme in the life of Joan Fontaine. And while promoting her autobiography in 1978, Fontaine addressed the particular issue of her estrangement with Martita, stating, and I quote her here, Until my adopted daughter goes back to see her parents, she's not welcome." I promised her parents and I do not forgive somebody who makes me break my word." End quote. Wow. A hard woman, one senses. And it, it's certainly easy to see why and how there were so many estrangements, so many personal breakups in her life. In fact, Biographer Charles Hyam records that Fontaine had an estranged relationship with her own biological daughter as well, but who, interestingly enough, apparently stayed on good terms with her aunt, Olivia. Fontaine's film success slowed during the 1950s, but this was not unusual in the changing Hollywood of the era, and she also began appearing in television and on the stage. In fact, she won good reviews for her role on Broadway in 1954 as Laura in the play Tea and Sympathy, playing opposite Anthony Perkins. Later, during the 1960s, Fontaine would appear in several stage productions, including Private Lives, Cactus Flower, and an Austrian production of The Lion in Winter, of all things. Her last theatrical film was the Hammer horror movie The Witches made in 1966, which was the type of genre movie that became the refuge for many, particularly female stars from Hollywood's golden age, who found good parts harder to come by as they grew older. And I'm thinking here not only of Joan Fontaine, but also of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, who late in their career often performed in horror films. And not especially prestigious ones either. Fontaine would appear often on television in the 1970s and 80s and was in fact nominated for an Emmy, just like her sister Olivia. Um, But in this case, uh, not for a TV movie, but for the soap opera, Ryan's Hope. And that was in the year 1980. Now, Contrary to many reports, the sisters did continue their relationship after the 1940s and had at least some form of private reconciliation, perhaps more than once, though it never lasted. I mean, after Fontaine's separation from her husband in 1952, de Havilland came to her apartment in New York on a number of occasions, and they at least once spent Christmas together there in 1961. There's also this wonderful photograph of the two sisters laughing together at a party at the opening of Marlena Dietrich's 1967 one-woman show on Broadway. And also, Joan went to Paris to visit Olivia in 1969. So it's not as if there was a complete rupture, at least not yet, In fact, you could say it was an ongoing affair. You know, the last known photo of them together was taken with their mother Lillian shortly before Lillian's death in 1975. And in that picture, you can see all three women appearing together quite happily. I mean, they're smiling. They appear to be laughing. They're in each other's arms. So there were times when it seems the two sisters could put difficult feelings aside. But perhaps on this case, they were doing it for the benefit of their mother. And I say that because there was a final break between them, and it did occur that year, in 1979, when, according to Fontaine, they stopped speaking because of a disagreement over their mother's cancer treatment. Apparently, it had something to do with de Havilland wanting their mother to be treated surgically, while Fontaine opposed surgery due to their mother's advanced age. And Joan, never one to overlook a slight, also claimed that Olivia did not make a significant effort to notify her at the time of their mother's death. At the funeral service, the sisters didn't speak to each other. And again, according to Joan, and I quote her here, Olivia scattered a handful of ashes, then silently passed the container to me. Thus I said goodbye to my mother. As for Olivia, I had no words at all. End quote. Up until the 1970s, both sisters had largely refused to comment publicly about their relationship. But Joan changed all that with the publication of her autobiography, No Bed of Roses, in 1978. And much of what I've been quoting uh, regarding her words comes from that autobiography. So, you know, I think it's fair to say that the person who really fanned the flames of the feud the most was Joan herself. Especially in the many interviews uh, that she did in promoting her book. And you can find a lot of that on YouTube. And I think it's really quite clear that Her remarks in the book are really quite self-serving, so much so that the reader, I think, is likely to come away from it disliking Joan and feeling that Olivia was perhaps, you know, sensible to keep what distance she might from, you know, an often jealous, poisonous, and begrudging sister, right? Right? Some have questioned Joan's veracity in her autobiography, No Bed of Roses. Joan's second husband, William Dozier, even suggested rather mischievously that the book should have been entitled No Word of Truth. In any case, it definitely presents a venal portrait of Olivia, who was said to regard the book as completely poisonous and which probably hardened their on-again, off-again estrangement beyond recovery. Joan would live another 35 years after the publication of her autobiography, residing in Carmel Highlands, California, where she owned an estate, Villa Fontana. And it was there that she died of natural causes in her sleep at the age of 96 in 2013. The great sibling feud between these Hollywood divas was at an end. Um, But not quite. Determined to have the last word on the matter, Fontaine once noted, I married first, won the Oscar first, and if I die first, she'll probably be livid because I beat her to it. (laughs) Can you believe that? For her part, following her sister's death, de Havilland released A rather simple statement saying that she was shocked and saddened by the news. De Havilland herself would live another seven years, only passing away last year in 2020 at the age of 104. Maybe the last great survivor from Hollywood's golden age. Along the way, she made a number of very public appearances late in life, once as a presenter at the Academy Awards, and most notably in receiving the National Medal of Arts from the American President Bush in 2008. And I quote, the words spoken at the ceremony for her persuasive and compelling skill as an actress in roles from Shakespeare's Hermia to Margaret Mitchell's Melanie." Her independence, integrity, and grace won creative freedom for herself and her fellow actors. True that. In 2010, Olivia was appointed a Chevalier, or Knight of the Legion of Honor, the highest decoration in France, awarded by French President Nicolas Sarkozy, who told the then 94-year-old actress, You honor France for having chosen us. Then the following year, in 2011, de Havilland appeared at the César Awards in France, the French equivalent of the Oscars, where the president of the ceremony, Jodie Foster, introduced her, and de Havilland received a standing ovation. You know, perhaps being the younger sister eventually worked to Joan's advantage, at least insofar as it motivated her, spurred her on, to create the career that she had. Yet, as I understand it, it never seemed to bring her much happiness. It did give her the drive to make those firsts in the family, you know, of which she spoke about so bitterly. The first sister to get married, the first to win an Academy Award, etc. However, that drive and ambition, as evidenced by her highly vindictive autobiography, also suggests that she had a lot of unresolved issues regarding both her mother and sister. And I think it speaks volumes about Joan that her four ex-husbands, only sister, biological child, and adopted child were all or mostly completely estranged from her. Whereas Olivia apparently always maintained an amicable relationship with her two ex-husbands. For example, when second husband Pierre Galant became ill with cancer, she took him back into her house in Paris so that she could take care of him until he died some years later. And Olivia was very close to her only child, Giselle, right up until her death last year. As we know, it doesn't take much to set ablaze the unquenchable fires of sibling rivalry. It's usually the result of one or both parents very obviously favoring one child over another. And to the unfavored child, in this case Joan, it probably felt like being pushed out of the nest. You know, the value of having extended families that interact frequently is that an aunt or uncle or grandparent will catch sight of the favoritism and make the parents wise to it, or indeed offset it themselves. But that wasn't the case here. The de Havilland's father abandoned the family fairly early on, So Olivia getting most of Mummy's attention was bound to be the target of much resentment by Joan. And it left such an indelible mark that Joan lived with it all her life. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this two-part discussion about the relationship of these two great movie stars from Hollywood's golden era, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Please join me next time for more movie talk. You've been listening to Code St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Cote St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of cote St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day.